0: Hi everyone, today is January 17th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest is Sarah Woolley, who's Associate Professor of Biology at McGill. Her lab looks at neural mechanisms that contribute to production, perception, and preference in social communication in songbirds. And she uses electrophysiology, functional imaging, immediate early gene expression, behavioral analysis, and computational methods in, in her lab to, to do so. So around the room, we've got a little group. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And again, I'm Salma Karashi. I don't know that we've had anyone who explicitly does preference work in behavior, I don't specifically in birds. Like, I'm interested in just the behavioral <laughs> paradigm for, to start with. So our challenge is to figure out how to get female birds to tell us what they like.
1: And we've tried it a number of different ways. So in frogs, for example, and a lot of other species, you can use this phonotaxis where they approach a speaker that's playing something that they like. And, um, and that works really well um, for some stimuli, but it doesn't, if females have a very strong preference for something, you can get them to, to respond in almost any way. They'll increase their calling, they'll approach a speaker, they'll um, activate something that will play back a song much more often than they will for something else. But if you have a situation where their preference is weaker, so they're sort of like, I kind of like A more than B, but my preference isn't really strong, um, then it's some of those approaches work really well and some of them don't. So the phonotaxis one, she can hear both speakers playing at the same time. And so she has to really want to approach the speaker, really like that stimulus in order to move, because she can hear them both. So if it's a weak preference, she'll just stay in the middle um, and eat or whatever. Um, And so that's where something like an operant uh, situation, like what we use for the string pulls, works really nicely, because they're isolated. These are really gregarious birds. They like to hear song, but they're isolated in a sound box. And in order to hear something, they have to actively do something to make the playback happen. And so there, they have to pull on a string, and that makes the speaker playback a song. So they have a, a choice. A they have a choice, or, yeah. yeah and so a, if they if they really dislike both of them, they won't pull anything. But if they but they generally want to hear songs, and so in that case, they'll pull one more than the other, or maybe they'll pull them both at the same time if they think they're about equivalent.
0: And so in your work on looking at how plastic these preferences are and how catecholamines affect this stuff you're looking at changes in the in the basically the the ratio of of of, of string pulls. yes as so how do you interpret that though is that really a change in preference or is it a loss of preference or i mean is it a sharpening versus a, a you know a change in sort of some averse i mean I... I'm just curious if there's any more sort of subtlety of how you can tease out some of those different questions.
1: Right, and so I think that um, certainly the string pull is giving us a nice sense of what their preference is and how strong it is, right? So we can get, you know, a slight difference between how much they pull on one string versus the other, um, and that would mean they had sort of a weak preference for something, and you can test them multiple times and see if that same preference holds over multiple tests. Um, and then a uh, in a lot of cases, we get this really sort of strong preference where they'll pull hundreds of times on one side and 50 times on the other side, something like that. And so even if we change the which song gets played back with which string, they then switch over to the
0: other side and
1: quickly will pull to get whatever the, song it was that they like.
0: And the behavioral relevance of this is uh, just the reward of the song. There's no exactly. food reward or right, anything. Right, right. So we think that
1: um, because they're so social that hearing song, especially if they've been isolated for a bit, is rewarding um, or is something that they... Yeah, that they they want or desire, and so as a consequence, the more that they pull, that means that that's one that they want to hear more often.
2: So and, when you're like dealing dopamine, mm-hmm. does it do they pull more or less? Uh, either or about the same amount. I mean, do they have a trade off about the same amount, or I guess it's even hard. It's harder to see whether there's a, some ceiling on the amount of time or the attention and stuff like that. So you you can't really. It's hard to tell relative preference Mm -hmm. from some individual preference plus some overall constraint on attention or something like that. And so
1: generally we see that on that, that second day of testing, um, everyone's preferences, or everyone's, the amount of pulling so do, that wait, they actually, do goes down. Why don't you, describe the, why don't you yeah. describe the experiment? Oh, yeah. The, so. So, um, so we test females to see which song they like, song A or song B. Um, these are songs from two different males. And once we know what that is, then we pair either um, a dopamine agonist with the less preferred song, um, just in passive playback, uh, through an infusion directly into this caudomedial nidopalium or the NCM. And um, so we'll put a dopamine agonist with the less preferred song, and either um, saline or a dopamine antagonist with the preferred song, and then a the f- uh, couple days later we test them again to see what their preference is. And the idea is that, um, yeah, that we're trying to see if providing that uh, dopamine agonist with the less preferred song can change the um, degree of preference for that song. And so s- is uh, this is
3: trying to recapitulate how the animal obtained this preference in the first place that somehow one of the songs was associated with dopamine release or something.
1: So we don't know how the pref- that particular preference originates, but the idea is what we found through other experiments is that um, females will learn preferences for the songs of their mate, and they won't learn preferences for songs that they just hear passively. So if you just play them a song through a speaker for a couple hours a day, they don't change their, their opinion of that song. Um, If you actually present the female with a male in a cage, so he's in a cage next to hers, and he's singing to her and they're vocally interacting, we also don't see any change in preference for particular songs. But if you let those two birds interact, and in particular, if they um, if they form a pair bond, so they spend a lot of time sort of huddled together or cuddling, we call it clumping, um, and they um, and the male sings a lot of courtship song in that period of time, um, within the span of a few days to a couple of weeks, you'll see very strong preferences for that male's song over pretty much any other song that you would play. And so we think that the experience of interacting with that male is sort of... is bringing in the dopamine system. So you get this, this pairing of increased dopaminergic activity coupled with the hearing that particular song. So the acoustic stimulus and the physical stimulus are, are getting sort of combined in there. And so that in our hypothesis is that then when females hear that song again, it's sort of um, increasing the, that dopaminergic activity and leading to a stronger representation or memory of that mate song. And so the question was, could we recapitulate that by manipulating um, dopamine in this auditory area specifically? So not doing it in the accumbens or um, somewhere else where you might sort of expect that there would be an effect of dopamine on preference, but just doing it in the auditory system.
3: So that, that makes some kind of a feedback loop, right? The... the um, the female likes this male's song a little bit, mm-hmm. and so hangs around with that male a little bit more. Is more likely to to form a bond with that one, and then that one that bond causes her to like that
1: mm-hmm.
3: song more and more. That's the yes, idea. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah. So this is the whole story of mating, for the for, <laughs> right for those birds,
2: anyway.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. Because it's all about the song.
1: It's all about the
0: song. Okay.
3: If it's a
2: bad first date, then you don't get good. Yeah, bad right? song in
1: the
3: beginning is, and you're done.
0: <laughs> so in that instance, in this auditory region, you have an increased salience of the song representation irrespective of these other areas that you imagine are more associative in terms of this memory or mm-hmm. what have you. Right, right.
3: But are these nuclei like specific to, to song or... Uh, like a lot of things in the uh, bird, there's yep. like specialized song region of this and a song region of right, that. Right, right. And so this is about liking song. It isn't about liking food or liking anything else. It's...
1: So that so we don't actually know. So unlike this, the case in males, where you have this, this discrete specialized circuit that's just for song learning and song production, right? Um, so when Fernando Notabom originally discovered this difference between males and females in zebra finches, he was looking at Nissel slides. And you could, in males, you could see these giant nuclei that just weren't present in females. Even without using a microscope, you could see the differences. We don't have that really clear circuitry for... Female preference, and that's part of what we're trying to figure out. So,
3: so it could be this is a multi-purpose mechanism that works for all kinds of preferences, not just so. right,
1: right. It could be, um, and we haven't tested any of those yet. So, trying to figure out if, yeah, if you present females with a preferred food, if you get activation of neurons in these areas or not. I think certainly for the auditory areas, the food preference seems less likely, but um, yeah, the trying to figure out how specialized they are.
3: Uh, So in these nuclei, there are auditory areas and non-auditory areas? Are these specifically auditory parts of the...
1: So we started with the parts of the circuit that are, are auditory. So we started with the auditory areas, although you could argue that we're not quite sure what the NCM is. So it's treated as an auditory area, and I think that's definitely true for the most medial parts of it, but it may be more multimodal as you move farther lateral. Um, So it might be, yeah, it might be getting more visual input or more other sorts of inputs to it than just uh, auditory, but it definitely shows really strong auditory responses.
3: So that's the one, though, that isn't that preference-sensitive, the one that's that's really giving you the good results for preference No, no, so
1: the preference-sensitive one seems to be the NCM. That's the NCM. Yeah, that's the NCM.
2: But these auditory areas aren't so uh, distinct and specialized for song even in the males. Mm hmm It's more the the ones that are really discrete and stuff are more towards the motor end Uh of things or the interface. Uh, And that's where they were found is tracing back from the syrinx to go back uh, uh, and found this nucleus and then that nucleus and so forth. And so as you get, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how how distinct they are in, in males, but my impression is NCM, there's not like this... Missile yeah. stain, song, new part of NCM, right, right. even in No, it's a big
1: amorphous part of the brain, and it doesn't seem to be specialized. It's, it's auditory, but it's not specialized for song. Although, um, if you think about the sort of primary auditory cortex field L, I think those neurons tend to respond really nicely to pretty much any sound. Um, and uh, and as you move through the auditory pathway, things do become a bit more specialized. So you get stronger responses to song than to white noise once you get into these sort of secondary regions. So there's some specialization there, but it's not it's not doesn't seem to be distinct between males and females.
0: So area X, which is I guess the vocal learning mm-hmm. and production area, those, that's always sort of the biggest real estate in the diagrams that I recall. It's like L <laughs> and area X and. I'm not sure whether that's a general purpose learning area, but obviously the females don't produce song, Mm -hmm. but they do learn association. So is area X... A dual purpose is it is it there in the female and what's So area X is
1: there in females and um, and area X is big. In, so in males, area X is very big. It's a lot of real estate in the striatum um, that's devoted specifically to song learning and production, sort of generating variability. Um, it's present in females, but you you can't really see it. Like you have to in order to find it. Frank Johnson has done this recently in his lab, where if you inject tracer into HVC, the sort of Premotor cortex, um, you can uh, you can trace to area X in females, but if you were just sort of looking through Nissl
0: stain or something else very simple,
1: it's hard to pick up.
0: So it's there, but it's not. So That points to the idea that it's it's that's probably not a general purpose associational mm-hmm. area. That's really specific, right? And we don't production. know if it does anything specific in females or not.
1: It, it the yeah. It, It seems as though a lot of those sort of circuits are still there in females, but they're clearly not for song production learning per se. Um, They may be important for helping to figure out call timing and call interactions that birds have that are for non-learned vocalization, so setting up that kind of coordination, but I don't know that they're there for song perception learning.
3: So females make songs, but they don't make learned songs.
1: Yeah, they make these sort of uh, short vocalizations. We call them calls. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but they're not learned.
2: So it seems like you have uh, one of the things in terms of the combination of techniques that you've been using. It's a uh, you get like two out of three because <laughs> you have the behavior right, <laughs> and then you want to to know uh, is it modulated by whatever preference or or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and then you have the area you want to know where this is uh Mm -hmm. this is happening um uh but you have to get the burst like if you do immediate early gene expression right Mm -hmm. you can't say things don't go up and down with while they're pulling the one string are the neurons more active for that one or the other one and and in that behavioral context, as they go, do they shut up and then be quiet? You have very little temporal resolution. you mm-hmm. can't come back,, yeah. do a learning experience, and you can't track them, which would be great to get you know some electrophys kind of thing, mm-hmm. but then you don't know where to stick your electrodes because right. you 're not sure where that is, at least with an <laughs> I, uh, IEG expression, you can stain for it and look exactly where is there some place that you get a lot of staining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other kinds of things, if you do, like, uh, the fMRI, which is super cool in these teeny little things, right? Yeah. But you can't get them to do a whole bunch of preference behavior, mm-hmm. right, in the fMRI machine. So you, you're you just looking for the stimuli that you can do, and so you right. you right. can't get them to react to the thing. So you, you got two out of three, right? <laughs> so at least you can, say, in the fMRI, you can do something and see the activity go up and down as you do mm-hmm. this distinction versus that distinction, right? Right, right. Um,
1: so yeah, we can compare more stimuli in the fMRI, and we can do it more longitudinal. So you can have, you know, what are their, What areas are responding to these stimuli before we put them together with a mate one week in, two weeks in after preference testing. So you can sort of test them multiple times with multiple stimuli and see how they respond. But you can't do it online while they're, while they're actually interacting with something. Um, and IEGs are are the same way but more challenging almost because you um, you can only do one stimulus at a time. And so you're comparing between birds to IEG look at
3: is immediate, early, immediate gene.
1: early genes, yeah.
3: So what immediate early genes do you use?
1: We, use uh, we used to use EGR1 and CFOS. We may not use any of them in the future because the Santa Cruz um, who used to make the antibodies has stopped producing both of them. Um, So there are very few antibodies that work well in birds, and um, those two are no longer being made. So a lot of the IAG work will probably not continue.
3: That's a shame. Yeah. The immediate early (laughs) genes are are species-specific, so birds have their whole... Well, CFOS is...
1: CFOS is... They're both similar across across a range of species, but finding the particular antibody that will... yeah. Is that because the epitope that.
3: is different? There enough yeah. there's enough difference yep. that the antibodies have trouble.
1: Yeah.
3: And so the problem for Santa Cruz is just market. The market isn't big enough for bird immediate early genes. Or I actually
1: think Santa Cruz had a bunch of run ins with um uh, whoever sort of does oversight to them and uh, they shut down so those. The so quality control con- quality control. Yeah.
0: So why, why, what's the, is, what is the difference between the EGR versus FOSS? Uh, why choose one over the other?
1: So a lot of the, I don't have a clean answer to that. So in general, um, they seem to, to show differential activity under different conditions, if that makes sense. So for example, um, if you look in the motor circuits, um, EGR1 is higher in area X, the basal ganglia nucleus, when males sing um, by themselves versus when they sing to females. You don't see that same change in activity in CFOS. So clearly, these sort of downstream genes are responding to different changes in inputs that are coming in.
3: There's a lot that we don't know
1: but about. But we don't the, really the have DNA a good sense. Expression. There was one study by Worley back in the 80s, I think, where you know, he um, initially just stimulated with like a tonic. Um, a tonic spike train versus the same number of spikes but clustered into bursts. And you got changes in FOSS activity or FOSS expression with the bursts versus the tonic. But that's about the extent to which we have a good sense of what these are responding to. And why FOSS is different from egr one we don't really know.
3: That would be good. That stuff would be good to know because people are mm-hmm. using these a lot now. They're really yep. popular. Yeah, Yeah, so what always struck me is like... Because it, it
2: depends on, you know, which uh, uh, world you work in, right? Mm-hmm. So some people, it's just like, these are activity markers. Mm-hmm. They mark activity, you see them, you see, that's activity.
3: and uh, <laughs> We don't need to define activity exactly. Right. right. We just
1: call it activity. <laughs> right.
3: And... and
2: but, but I think
1: change is the better word for it. Like something, something changed in the in that cell. Not necessarily that it's firing more or less, even, but the pattern has changed or something. Yeah. But
2: there has to be something else that's that there. Plus, uh, you know, it's probably activity plus ten or twelve or two or one other <laughs> ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. Of of what triggers some activity. Uh, in, the, in certain contexts will trigger down all the way down to gene expression and otherwise build up that calcium signal or whatever you get right. for activity. It, it doesn't because it, the other part of the, the, uh, either the biochemistry or the genetics mm-hmm. has been switched off to not increase. Mm-hmm. And so there's always like this third mystery thing where it probably does go up and down if you burst them and you can get them to express, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the context of something else that's completely unknown And so it changes in some behavioral context. One of them goes up and down, and that's good enough. Right. Right?
1: I think they're really, they definitely have utility in trying to narrow down where to look. And so, um, yeah. So for the work that I've done, the fact that we see just these similar patterns of change kind of independent of what the stimulus is, but if the stimuli are different, you see this particular patterns of uh, change in the caudal medial mesopalium, the CMM, um, sort of across birds and across contexts and rearing conditions and so on. Um, And then in the NCM, we see different patterns depending on which of those variables you tweak. And so exactly what that means as far as what patterns s-
3: means what I mean different yeah, spacial, well, no. uh, well, so so different and? numbers
1: of neurons ah. that we're seeing labeling for right so in in some cases you might see uh, differences in response to these two stimuli and in another case you might see the same response to those two stimuli depending on the rearing condition something like that and so what exactly that means as far as the act- actual activity that's happening in those neurons in that circuit don't really know, but it, it directs us that maybe that's the place that we should go stick our electrode and figure out what exactly those neurons are doing in response to the stimuli.
3: So and then when you do the fMRI imaging, you see the exact same spot? You see
1: the exact same spots, yeah. Um, and fMRI has the, so with immediate early genes, you still have the challenge of like, which places am I going to send my graduate student or undergraduate to go count? right? So mm-hmm. you need to count in this box here, in this box here, and so on. But you still have to, you have to pick and choose what regions to look at. With the fMRI, it has the advantage of it does sort of whole brain simultaneously. And so you don't you don't get to pick and choose. It it tells you which ones are showing a, a differential response. So that also helps to sort of narrow down the field of where to go actually investigate in more detail.
2: So we've got any exceptions where the, so the I don't know how many different conditions of comparisons of things yeah. you've looked at in the fMRI versus the the uh, immediate early genes, but they are like dead on consistent with lots of different conditions, or uh, you've looked at a few places and they seem to go up and down together. I'm just wondering if blood flow is how correlated it is with
1: right. So we have we have the one study that um, we found the same sorts of changes in um, in. IEG expression as we did with fMRI. So for the same set of stimuli, we found, you know, an increase for courtship song versus non-courtship song in the CMM and the NCC in both of those, using both of those measures. We don't always find that those two things match up. And so um, so in males, we don't find the same uh, sort of... Uh, yeah, sort of matching, and so I don't know what that means. It doesn't seem shocking to me that you wouldn't see exactly the same thing using two different approaches, but it certainly makes it harder to describe um, why you see the same thing in one condition and not in the other.
3: So I'm I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm intrigued by the idea of just making a sort of a really simple model of preference hmm. out of. I know it's probably too simple, but. Um, but it's consistent with with everything I've heard you say. Mm -hmm. So if there's some uh, part of the bird auditory system that um, if the neurons there fire to auditory stimulus in large numbers, that means that the bird likes it. And the more more cells fire to that stimulus, the more the bird likes it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the cells fire is because the input has been paired with dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so you just, like, things that are associated with more dopamine cause more neurons to fire in that preference place to auditory stimuli. And you just say, well, that's a nice sound. I really like that sound. And that's it. (laughs) We're done. Yay. I mean, what do you think about that? Does that make you nervous? Or do you like
1: that as a model of preference? It does make me a little nervous because I think it's there's clearly got to be more to it than just the number of neurons that are responding, but I don't know what I don't know what that relationship is between.
3: Um, so the the that area of the brain projects to some place and just converges on some neurons because if if hmm. pla- if position doesn't mean anything in that nucleus, right. for example, which it wouldn't in this mo- model, mm-hmm. then 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 the next cell down should just be asking itself how many. Neurons are active, <laughs> right? That should be the only question,
1: right? Right. And when are they active? there's probably some temporal information in there that we've completely lost, right? Oh, because
3: uh, all because the because methods, all methods the are kind of smeared in time. Exactly. Like
1: FMRI exactly. We play them back. Minutes. You know, forty-five minutes of song, and then we wait, and then we. Um, uh,
3: so the bird could actually be in a note, doing a note-by-note note criticism of this song, and we would miss all of that.
0: Exactly. In terms of the local architecture, how interconnected are those cells? Because can you even glean that this is all sort of afferent uh, activity versus spreading internal activity? I mean, like, there's there's got to be clues in the architecture, no?
1: So for the most part, I don't know that we have a good sense of what the architecture in NCM looks like. Um, it's, it's pretty broad and amorphous from what we can tell. So there's... Um, there are differences in terms of the um, the expression of, say, aromatase or um, other sorts of things there, but there's there hasn't been um, there's not a clear organization to it. There was one study that was done uh, a while back by Claudio Mello where they were in looking in canaries and they used a lot of birds for this study, but they basically played back a whole range of different sounds or. Like guitar and birdsong and a r- whole bunch of things to try to figure out exactly what the architecture was of the NCM. And while there's clearly some sort of frequency and other organization to it, it it doesn't come across the way that um, that you get sort of a nice tonotopic organization in primary auditory
0: cortex or something like that. So exactly what the organization is, we don't have. A you can good determine whether through. these are. I mean, can you look at any finer? Like you can determine whether these are interneurons or.
1: So we or can do that, and there's rejection. there's a lot of there's a lot of inhibitory interneurons in that region, yeah. And then um, and then there's a smattering of uh, these yeah glutamatergic uh, neurons through there too, and they seem to divide up. Um, so there's that description. There's also if you record from those neurons, there are broad spiking and narrow spiking neurons, which seem likely to sort of match up to inhibitory versus excitatory neurons there, um, and. Yeah, and, but the details of how those guys connect up to each other and how they shape responses to song is something still getting worked out.
2: But the, the excitatory neurons have a, also have dense collaterals and stuff like that? Okay.
1: That
3: like I do, yeah. Is a, a
2: lot Probably. of crosstalk?
1: yeah.
3: So, so I asked you this question at a previous time, but... Mm-hmm. If the if you make if if the bird already likes this song and now you you pair dopamine with a different song that it likes mm-hmm. less and now it more neurons are uh, express immediate early genes in in uh, response to the to the song that previously wasn't preferred mm-hmm. so I'm I'm wondering if the if the old song expresses less neurons because in the because many things are preferred. I mean th- many things are 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 good mm-hmm. in the world and, <laughs> but not everything. Right. And, uh, and there's a kind of question if if in this like simple model where it's just how many neurons fire mm-hmm. there's no particular reason why you couldn't just accumulate preferences in a model like that. It's not like some of these models where you have to do discrimination. So if so you could just keep liking more and more things or you could start liking less and less things over time. You could be a bird that doesn't like any sound, or a bird that loves all kinds of music. And um, So have you been able to uh, get any idea about that in the, from just counting the number of neurons that are activated in these experiments?
1: I don't think that we have. I think in part because we haven't looked at... Let's see. So one of the things we would want to look at is... How birds respond to things that they how those neurons respond to things that the bird actively doesn't like. So I think when we're doing the the courtship song versus the non-courtship song, it's not like they hate the non-courtship song. They just don't like it as much as they like the courtship song. Um, But we do have some songs where when we test large groups of females, they all say that, you know, this is a bad song. Nobody likes this song. If you no matter what you competed against, Everybody will and avoid an this particular male bird song. it's that that a male song bird that makes that, that, that makes
3: that song. Bird has no success.
1: Yes, exactly. And so I don't really have a good sense of what, yeah, what IEG expression in NCM would look like uh-huh. for that song. It's clear that um, these are
0: naive
3: birds.
1: These are naive birds. Yeah. And so and it's so it's. They clear have some built-in. I
3: mean, that's one of the things male. she showed, right? Is mm-hmm. that they have some built-in preference for mm. certain kinds of songs right yep. from the beginning.
1: Yep. And some. Some songs, yeah, are good and some yeah. are not. And so I don't know what the activity looks like in, t- in response to those yeah. songs that are not. Whether it really just is, like, if you like something, you get more neurons that respond to that, and that's the way it goes. And yeah. the ones that you don't like, they, they just get ignored. Or if there's actually some active process that's coding for, like, this yeah. is a terrible song. You should not yeah. go near this. It's
3: <laughs> <laughs> something like, you know, if there's some kind of agreed-upon idea about what... A, What's, what's dissonance, mm-hmm. what harmony is, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is that universal among people? I think it's pretty, pretty common. I know there are different musical scales played in different places, but I listen to music from other cultures, and I, can, I think I more or less agree with them about what sounds good coming out of their instruments. So mm-hmm. maybe we have also some built-in mm-hmm. sound preferences. Um, right. This. Yes, you know, sc- screeching, screeching.
1: Nails on a chalkboard like. is something like is that, is it, that
0: If you play something in hated. like a major versus a minor chord, it's sort of disconcerting, isn't there? So I don't know anything about music, but I, I, I've, does, are there any musicians? You guys know this stuff. Well, major Am I using the long m- Minor
3: songs can both be really great sounding, but minor songs have a kind of creepy sound. That yeah, that's what you, mean. I mean. Uh, minor chords were lo- really preferred by Nirvana, for example.
0: So that, that may that. shift, <laughs> <hopefully> that, that <laughs> sense
2: of dread or whatever is associated with it. Huh. Well, it's one of the, the the big cues seems to be, in that interfaces what with, with, uh, people have done because of all the electrophids and all that stuff, about the variability mm-hmm. and the reproducibility of these songs and how shaky they are or how right on they are. It seems mm-hmm. like the females care a lot about that, so it may not necessarily be so much quality that they're looking for right and, and it's a little bit hard to tell because most songs have
3: shaky meaning like the bird the male bird isn't confident or isn't skilled is isn't practice yeah well some of it's
2: just the, the stereotypy from one i guess we didn't know about it's confidence yeah <laughs> right
1: but there's um there's some waveriness that gets put into um some of the notes that they make that seems uh-huh. to be so a lot of the comparison between courtship and non-courtship song is done across renditions of the same syllable or renditions of the same motif. Um, but there's actually measures that you can do within a single syllable that will um, indicate whether it's courtship or non-courtship. And in particular, there's this sort of like wavery or noisiness that you'll get in syllables when he sings by himself that you won't see when he sings to a female. So, yeah, so that's sort of...
3: So that, that's... That's what sounds bad, probably, something like that. Right. But that sounds bad to a female right from the very beginning, even when they're completely naive about song, about male courtship songs.
1: So that we don't, so that we don't know. So the, um, the Chen et al. study that I talked about where we had the birds that were reared without their dads, um, so they hadn't heard song throughout development. Um, those females don't show these consistent preferences for courtship song. And when we went and did a bunch of measures of, you know, particular spectral and temporal features of those songs, what we found was that in the birds that were normally reared, so they'd heard song when they were young, um, they preferred um, courtship song more when it was when it had less spectral entropy to it, so when it was less noisy. Mm. Um, whereas the song naive birds, the ones that didn't hear song when they were young, they uh, showed the opposite effect. They actually liked the courtship song more when it was more noisy Uh and that was sort of the only um, sort of song feature preference relationships that we pulled out of there so it may be that you need to something about hearing song during development tunes up the receptive fields of those neurons that um, helps birds to sort of yeah that leads to this preference for less noisy syllables in the end
2: So maybe how normal birds behave, right? They they produce song in some ways when, like the males, when they're off doing their own thing and no one cares, and then mm-hmm. when they don't, they actually learn that mm-hmm. when they're exposed. Just normally, they can tell behavioral some behavioral state by quality, and they're learning something mm-hmm. uh, to so get to do something.
0: In terms of how long these associations last, like from season to season, these birds will have different mates. Is that right? So uh, the zebra finches don't. So so they'll
1: have the same mate, pretty much, as long as they're both alive. So they're built to retain yeah.
0: these associations. Exactly. Somehow.
1: Yeah. And the yeah the first studies that I did, I the birds that I was using were pairs that had been together for you know for years that were no longer having offspring, and so I inherited them to test preferences on. And what I found was that those females would continue to prefer their mate song you know, months or even up to a year after they'd been separated. So um, they definitely remember the songs and it's a very strong preference over a long period of time.
2: Those are sad experiments.
0: They are really sad experiments. <laughs> <laughs> well, all you need to do is just give them a little D1 agonist. That's and right. They'll forget all oh. that <laughs> D1 agonist yeah. and a
1: new mate and they're ready to go. Yeah.
0: Reprogrammed. Right. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Fascinating. Thank you for joining us, Sarah Woolley. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.